Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discussed this year's top independent film, learned about modern minding, and chatted about the death of local newspapers. All this was the Trump Diaries, AWCYFM, and Size Matters, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for February 14th, 2020. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. John and Jamie chatted with David Tease, the cameraman and creative force behind the new award-winning movie, The Peanut Butter Falcon. Tease discussed how the story of a young man with Down syndrome became a major hit, his reality TV background, and why story-driven movies matter. Radio Free Bridgeport airs every Tuesday, drive time. And we have a very exciting guest on the phone. On the phone from L.A., David Tease. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. about yourself? I'm doing well, well. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today, man. No, of course. I'm excited. So many, you, most people may not recognize the name here, but uh, David was one of the – what's the best way to put it? I mean, you really got this entire thing going and off the ground, and we're talking about what became the much acclaimed and lauded movie, The Peanut Butter Falcon. You did the short film that led to the longer film. Can, can you take people through how this, how this worked? Because this really was a passion project for you for a number of years. Yeah, it's, it's it's. I've been on the project for about five years now. <clears throat> I've come up through Hollywood as a camera operator, director of photography, and a director, and uh, produced a lot of our own stuff. I worked on a commercial uh, for Visa for the Winter Olympics back in like 2010 with Michael Schwartz, who is now one of the writer uh, directors of the movie, and he was a commercial editor at the time. And he called me up one day and said, "Hey, I've got this script." And I was like, oh, I didn't even know you were a screenwriter. And he's like, well, I am now. So he sent me this uh, script. Um, I read it. And a lot of times um, you start reading scripts and 10 or 15 pages in, you either know if it grabs you or it doesn't. Um, a lot of scripts don't. Um, and this one, I just kept going page after page after page, just wanting to know what happened. So read the script, loved the script. And uh, Michael was basically just like, what do we do? We want you to produce it. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, let's do it. Um, and I said a lot of times in TV, we will shoot a sizzle reel. I go, I think we should shoot a fake movie trailer because you guys have never directed a long-form feature before, and this will help us go to sell it. So I have a small rental company called TVCom, uh, film and TV here in L.A., and I loaded up a Sprinter with a Sony F55, Zeiss Super Speed, the Ronin uh, gimbal, and we drove it from here to the Outer Banks, where the film actually takes place. We ended up shooting at Savannah. And we shot every day for probably seven to nine days. I can't remember how long we were out there. But I had no crew. I had one assistant that came out with me. Um, we shot in the morning light, and we shot in the afternoon light. And we edited this fake movie trailer. We pulled scenes out that we thought we would see in the trailer if we shot the film. Mike, being an editor, edited it together. We colored it and put music that they had been thinking of kind of in the Coen Brothers, big O Brother um, vibe. And this proof of concept film, I called it a fake movie trailer, and it got turned into being this uh, proof of concept film, has gone around Hollywood and ended up uh, connecting us with um, Albert and uh, Ron, who had produced Little Miss Sunshine, Cold Mountain, um, and then we partnered with those guys on it. And then we, uh, another guy named Lai Sarkey came on board and then we connected with Armory Films, who in the end financed the film 
and uh, we just put a great team together. And uh, Shia, who ended up being uh, the lead opposite of Zach Gottsagen, uh, plays Tyler. Uh, when I finally did meet him, and he found out that I had shot and uh, done the proof of concept, he just said, that's, that's why I, I was on the film. I watched this film, and I watched Zach act in it. And funny enough, Tyler, the director, ended up acting in the proof of concept opposite of Zach. Um, and if people don't know, the script was actually written for Zach Gottsag, and it's about a 22-year-old kid with Down syndrome that runs away from a group home in the Outer Banks because he wants to become a professional wrestler. And he ends up linking up with a, another character named Tyler, who in our movie is played by Shia LaBeouf, who just uh, is running for his own reasons. And these guys go on like a Mark Twain-esque type uh, journey. So I've been on for a long time. David, that the, you talk about this proof of concept, uh, the fake trailer. That seems to be a pretty great idea. I mean, where did you come up with that, or had you done it before? Well, I've, I've, I've worked in reality TV. Um, I directed TV shows like Fantasy Factory on MTV and stuff. And, and when these production companies would go into pitch TV shows, they used to take in what was called a one sheet that just had a log line and said, here's what the show is, give us money or don't. And then they started realizing that people were having a hard time visualizing. So we would go shoot a sizzle reel. We'd go say, hey, this is what the show is about, you know, a clip show about, you know, all these crazy, crazy things out there. So I just took that knowledge from there and said, hey, I have the gear and we have the know-how and you guys have a great script and we have the actor. Let's go just shoot a movie trailer to go show people. And it's funny because we shot so many scenes out of the movie that when we started showing the trailer back here, people thought we just needed finishing funds, like money to, to, to get the music to do the editing and stuff. And we're like, no, 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 we haven't shot the film. <laughs> you know, what do we just look at? And we're like, that's just something we did, you know, on our own that we all funded. Um, so it's kind of become, it's been funny to run into people uh, in L.A. here and they, they've seen the proof of concept that it's kind of gotten its own, its own life to help people in independent film try to launch stuff, to try to help people um, say, hey, these guys are worth it, let's, let's fund their film. And we should point out that not only was this this film, you know, very well reviewed, and it's up for a, a lot of awards. And, and David, sincere congratulations on that. Uh, really, Absolutely. it's incredible. Thank you. But, but you guys shot this for what is an astonishingly small amount of money in the business. Uh, yeah. You yeah. also, and then you turn that into the highest grossing independent film of the year. So I mean, yeah. this really is an incredible uh, micro budget to you know smash hit. I, I guess one of the questions I had though is how did how did Shia come on board because i mean obviously you were not working with you know big crazy hollywood money no uh, how, did he just come on for scale or what what was the deal there yeah yeah so so everyone um really loved the project and basically came at it like a family everyone came on for essentially scale to uh go you know what we love this project we love zach because i started to say the script was written for zach and um, when these guys had done a, a uh, done some work at a place called Zeno Mountain Farms, they met Zach, mm-hmm. and they asked Zach, "Hey, what do you want to do in life?" Because he was doing a short film, and he goes, "I want to be a movie star." And they basically said, "Well, you know that that's great. There aren't a whole lot of opportunities to be movie stars." And Zach just looked at him without missing a beat and said, "Well, you guys write and you guys direct, and I'll star in it, and we'll just make it happen." So 
it became this whole thing where it was about making a movie, yes, but it was really about making this movie for Zach. Um, and it all culminates to Sunday. You know, we were in talks for uh, a movie's gotten amazing reviews, like you're saying, and it's been a blessing. And all these people came together and shooting the film in Savannah, Georgia, two summers ago, two and a half years ago, was like going to the best summer camp. No one wanted it to end. Um, every day you were getting up at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. to go out and, and shoot, and you just wanted the day to continue. Um, and so to see Zach and Shia present at the Oscars, that's just icing on the cake. I mean, that's come full circle right there to uh, to go, you know, we did it for Zach. And making history. That that really is an incredible story, given, you know, it's not, uh, again, dissimilar to the, the story itself of the film. It is. It is. Um, I ended up uh, scoring a ticket to Elton John's party and watching the Oscars there. So it was really cool to be with 700 people that I don't know that became fast friends when they cheered when uh, Shia and Zach, you know, came on. And does Zach, how does Zach, does Zach embrace the fact that now he's a movie star? You know what? It's so funny. It's, it's, I've never seen Zach nervous. You know, I saw people saying, Oh, he must've been nervous on the Oscar. He doesn't get nervous. He's just Zach. Um, and we were at the Palm Springs, uh, film festival a couple of weeks ago and Zach won an award. And I mean, there were some heavy hitters. We were at a party with Joaquin Phoenix and all these people. And I was like, Hey Zach, there's a Joaquin who's played the Joker. We should go say hi and get a photo. And he goes, Oh, okay. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> just walks up and hugs on his shirt. And you know, these people turn around and see their face light up <coughs> when they see Zach. And uh, we got some great photos with Todd Phillips and Joaquin Phoenix and, you know, all these all these people, Jamie Foxx and J-Lo. And it was just really cool to watch people react to, to Zach. And it, to him, it's just everyday life. He doesn't – I don't think he realizes what we've accomplished. Um, and he's just, in, he's just enjoying it, as he should. When you look at the, the film itself, uh, you talked about the joy of, of actually filming it you certainly captured a beautiful part of America. And, and uh, I mean, it doesn't seem that there was any lack of resources given how uh, just pretty the, the, the film is. When we, when we shot the proof of concept, like I said, we went out there and we didn't have a crew. So when we sat down to say, okay, well, what is the look of the film? I brought a set of what's called Zeiss Super Speeds, which are 40-year-old lenses, which give you kind of a period piece we don't say what time of what year it is that we filmed this, but we wanted it to have a late 70s, 80s, 90s vibe. We didn't want new cars. We kind of wanted to stand on its own. Like if you were to flip the channel and see it, you wouldn't realize this film was 2019. You would be like, oh, when did they shoot this? Um, so, you know, going out and shooting that, we decided, okay, landscape is going to be a character. We knew that because in your, like you're saying, there's beautiful areas. Um, and we did everything basically natural light. And in a proof of concept, I had backlit them. I didn't have grip and lighting. I didn't have anything. So I just had to kind of make do with what we were doing. So, uh, Nigel Block, who came on to lens the movie in the end, when he met me and realized I had shot the proof of concept, we hit it off fast. Um, and he had done true detective. Like he's very well accomplished, uh, director of photography. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I got to know him, and he was like, oh, man, he's like, this is awesome that you're here. He goes, I want to essentially keep the look and just improve upon what we've got now that we've got a crew. And I was like, yeah. So 
I was lucky enough to, I shot all the underwater footage. I shot the, the stuff in the river crossing that's me in the water with the camera with Shia and Zach. Oh, wow. um, and I was also the drone pilot. Um, so talking about low budget and having to make the most, the most of, uh, make that money go because I am, uh, in the 600 and everything, I was able to pick up slack so we didn't have to bring specialty crew in to do that stuff. Well, you took those aerial shots certainly gave a huge perspective of, of that area. You know, one of the things that I noticed in the, in the film talking about the actual place being a, a character, they, they reference Twain. And until that moment, I hadn't really thought about it in that way. Um, and it made me think about a whole bunch of other things, you know, like Easy Rider and things that I've seen and yeah. uh, those kind of adventures. It's it's so true. And, uh, you know, coming out to L.A. from Cincinnati, not too far from Chicago, um, I, did, I didn't know what I was going to be doing out here. I'm not trained in TV and, and camera. I just bought a camera and figured it out. It was almost a fake it till you make it uh, mentality. Um, just a lot of hard work and and just kind of learning what, what the stuff is out there. Um, when Michael and I, the director, were talking about this film and I read the script, I had always wanted to make a film like Stand By Me, a film that grabbed me and that just told a story and it wasn't special effects, it wasn't all this. And I read the script and I said to Mike, I said, for me, this is my Stand By Me. And I always say now that it's like, look, if Hollywood were to come tomorrow and say, you're never doing another project again, I can say I won. Chuck Mertz spoke to Martin Arboleda about mining and fossil fuel extraction. Under Trump, America has moved to seize oil. The next resource battle will come over rare earth metals. Arboleda discusses how this new economic imperialism works only on This Is Hell, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 10 a.m. Here to help us understand the vast impact of the resource extraction industry and how it may actually be revealing a future of collective response and agency. Sociologist Martin Arboleda is author of Planetary Mine, Territories of Extraction Under Late Capitalism. Martin is based at the School of Sociology at Universidad Diego Portales in Santiago de Chile. Welcome to This Is Hell, Martin. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. I'm really glad to have you on the show because this is an... What I really like to do on the show is to learn, and this is an issue that we haven't discussed in the past, and I learned a lot from this, and I hope I know I'm going to learn a lot more just in our conversation today. You write, the tendency to increase the organic composition of capital, that is the ratio of automated labor to living labor, has been an intrinsic feature of the capitalist mode of production since machinofacturing, the production of machines by machines, became the underlying technical foundation of large-scale industries. Since the turn of the 21st century, however, we appear to be witnessing 
witnessing a new stage in the historical struggle of capital against labor brought about by a new generalized architecture of social production. Is any class war that people believe may be taking place today better understood as a conflict of capital against labor? Well, that's a very um, relevant question today, Chuck. And I think uh, I, you know, like to basically to try to, you know, like frame it and and try to understand it better. I thought that the primary commodity uh, industry offers like a, a very relevant vantage point because since the turn of the century, we've witnessed, you know, like a huge leap forward in the technological sophistication of the mining industry as, you know, like it gets like robotized, like a, it like deploys all these forms of advanced automation. Uh, it becomes functionally integrated, not only within the various phases of the industry, which is, you know, like forecasting, blasting, haulage, but also uh, uh, it becomes more integrated with the different, uh, you know, like elements of the supply chain, which is, you know, like mining, uh, transport, the port industry, right, smelting, so uh, this process has unfolded alongside an equally dramatic, you know, like tendency for labor uh, precarization, precariousness, right? For labor casualization as, you know, like the industry becomes more smart, uh, you know, like autonomous. And it has triggered, you know, like some, some important uh, labor conflicts around the mining industry, which, of course, have reverberated, you know, like across various other sectors as well, right? Such as, you know, like ports in port industries, you know, like logistics and so on. So do you believe then that the struggle of capital against labor that is happening in mining is a harbinger for things to come in other industries or is it already manifesting itself in other industries? Yeah, I mean, I think to some extent it's already manifesting in other industries, but I think, you know, like what's interesting about the the mining industry is that it, you know, like it offers this kind of, you know, like extreme case of advanced mechanization. And actually, you know, like for many historians of technology, the mining industry like re represents a kind of, you know, like a, an... an a vantage point to look at future developments in other industries because uh, because primary commodity production usually deals with extreme environmental conditions, right? Such as you know like a high altitude or you know like uh, under under underground conditions of you know like low temperature, lack of visibility, lack of oxygen. So it is always you know like pushing forward you know like the frontier of technological innovation as and so the kinds of you know like a processes of, you know, like uh, advanced automation that, that we've witnessed in the mining industry uh, have been very extreme. And, and it enables us to perhaps get a grasp of what could happen in other industries, right? Because just, you know, like to give you a specific example, you know, like uh, uh, Google, uh, Tesla and other companies are, are testing prototypes for a self-driving car, which could be released into the market sometime during the 2020s, right? But in the mining industry, um, uh, BHP Billiton, in association with the Japanese uh, Komatsu, they released the first robotized, uh, fully autonomous uh, mining truck uh, in 2008, right? And this is a, a, a truck that, you know, like can operate uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week without direct human intervention, and it can communicate with other trucks uh, with the environment, you know, like it can, it can learn from the environment. And of course, 
Um, so it is a very, you know, like telling and, and, and indicative uh, way of looking at things because because it has created uh, dramatic tendencies of labor po- polarization. So you have, you know, like a small clique of, you know, like highly trained technical, you know, like uh, 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 workers, right, surrounded by, you know, like vast, like a vast, uh, uh, like, army of, you know, like uh, people on zero hour contracts, racialized, uh, living in very harsh conditions. So why why the mining industry? Why all of a sudden did it become so capital intensive and uh, automation advancing seemingly more so than other industries? Why? What was it about 21st century mining that seemed to attract so much capital investment and increases in automation, especially in light of people becoming more environmentally conscious and concerned about things like climate change. So why did the mining industry attract such great investment into automation at the beginning of the 21st century? Yeah, I think it has to do with two two. Uh, important reasons in, you know, like the the historical development of, you know, like the process of capitalist accumulation, which is first of all, um, the what is usually like uh, understood as the new international division of labor or the new new international division of labor, which is, you know, like uh, connected to the rise of China and other Asian economies as new industrial powerhouses. Um, which, of course, has created, you know, like a huge demand for uh, raw materials, right? For, you know, like advancing processes of construction, manufacturing, uh, information technologies, and so on, you know, like for rare earths, mining, also but, but also for, for minerals or for foodstuffs, right? So, um, because also, it also has to do, according to Bunker, uh, Stephen Bunker and Paul Chichentel, uh, who have studied, you know, like long, long-term trends on, you know, like global, the global resource industry, on, you know, like also, increasing uh, distances from the point of extraction to manufacturing. So this pushed forward also uh, the shipping industry. So Japan and South Korea were forced, like like by the 1990s, to develop new techniques for uh, iron ore smelting and aluminum production, right? Computerized forms of aluminum production to create faster uh, vessels to carry minerals, right? And, And this, of course, opened up new avenues for, you know, like enlarging demand. And the second reason, it's the so-called financialization of capitalism. Because recently we've witnessed, uh, you know, like the entrance of new uh, institutional investors to the mining industry. Uh, These are economic actors who usually have no direct relation to the mining industry, but uh, see it as a very profitable source of investment, such as, you know, like pension funds, uh, hedge funds, uh, mutual funds, and uh, various other kinds of of economic actors. So basically, uh, as a result of this new reorientation of uh, investment um, trajectories, uh, the basically the the primary commodity production industry has received a vast uh, influx of you know, like liquidity basically and 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 when you look at the figures I mean it's uh, they're really pumping a lot of money into into primary commodity uh, industry. <laughs> Now we could do a 
show about the squirrels of Bridgeport. I think what we need to focus on. Oh, are you okay? Oh my God. Kyle, sort through your mail. It's all junk. Just throw it out. No, you pick it up. It can't be strewn all over the entrance. It's a hazard. Last thing we need is another visit from the fire marshal. Last thing I need is less time to do all the crap around here. I got to do. You have no idea how much stuff. What the flip is their problem? Uh, John's identity got stolen a while back. Say what? Ooh, that's it. That's the show we're going to do about. English, please. On this episode, we're going to do an investigative report on identity theft. Every year, exactly 323 Americans gets their identities took. Size matters investigates. Hang on, did you fact check that? That's the fact that I said the thing. If that figure is exact, then the entire country is a nation of identity thieves. A plausible dystopia indeed. Size matters investigates. I met up with the host of Radio Free Bridgeport, John Daly, to expose the truth about identity theft. Cool beers. This one's a Rhode Island Dirty mm. IPA. I wanted to try Hello, one. good sirs. We're recording an episode of Size Matters. I know. I can see that. What's the episode about? Identity theft and the thieves who steal them. I would like to keep that a private matter. And the not... jig is up. How long you been gallivanting around as other people? That, that is not what Who's I... staring in oh. the meat suit? The what? This is good stuff. Keep going. Don't nag him on. Explain yourself, imposter. Speak. Someone used my personal information to go on a shopping spree. I think he's lying. That sounds rehearsed. Yeah, to me. it does. Jess, what the? Ow. Hey, not cool. Then tell me who you is. My identity got stolen. I wasn't taken over by the body snatchers or the talented Mr. Ripley. Or the thing. The what? what? The 1982 John Carpenter classic or the 1930s classic. So, wait, someone stole your credit card. Credit cards, PIN, Social Security uh, number, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's kind of boring. I can't do a whole show on that. Don't look at me. I think your concept of identity theft is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I totally see that now. That's good producing, Jess. Yeah, I'm great. Kyle, just be glad you're incapable of having your identity stolen. How so? No address, no records. Well, what about all the mail? That's right. What? You are on the grid. It's all junk. Credit card offers and social security, what have you. Uh, hang on. Credit card offers? Yeah. That means you have credit. Wait a sec. How many credit cards do you have? I ain't never had one. I'm checking here on the net to see if you have anything open in your name. Oh, yeah. Just my suitcase. Calm down, down I can't Kyle. use my suitcase. I'm using your suitcase because it's what I got to do. Kyle, you're freaking okay. out. You need okay. to relax. I've never okay. seen him okay. so distraught. John, how long has this guy been using Kyle's uh, info? About 30 years. <laughs> Just hold on. Let's see where in Scottsdale, Arizona, this guy lives. Wow. That is a nice piece of property. What? Property? Gets worse. You paid for med school. What? You gotta be Kyle, kidding me. don't worry. We're gonna kill this middle thing. Yeah, I don't know about that, but we're gonna confront them. I gotta go find him. Someone buy me a plane ticket. I made my way to Scottsdale, Arizona, where I met up with a man going by the name of Kyle Seismankowski. We agreed to meet up in an industrial park outside of... Oh, crud. The battery on the portable recorder is about to die. I'll talk fast. We agreed to meet up... Alive. Boy, what a trip. What a great time I had. Did you end up using the lie? The what? Uh, so is that guy in prison or what? Actually, this jerk turned out to be one of the coolest people I've ever met in my whole life. Say what? Yeah, he's got a great taste in clothes, cars, and this house is so big, I learned a new word to describe it. Palatial. This is the man who stole your information? Not at all. It turns out his name is also Kyle Seismankowski, and he was also born on September 29th, 1946 in Chicago. 
Well, that's because he ripped you off. No, it turns out it's just a coincidence. Kyle, for years he's been using your credit to establish himself in society while you've been stuck squatting and mooching. Not entirely. No, actually, completely. Now, it just so happens that we have identical social security numbers. The only difference is he actually has a social security card and a birth certificate. You don't? Nope. My dad just wrote all my information down on an index card and told me not to lose it. I gotta go and pack. Excuse me, guys. Wait. I'm confused. If Kyle Seismankowski of Scottsdale, Arizona has proof of who he is... Then who is our Kyle Seismankowski? Size Matters Investigates? This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump fires people who testified before Congress calling them insubordinate. The FBI warns Russia is running a massive disinformation campaign. Antarctica sets an unwanted record. The Secret Service has paid millions of dollars to Trump. Trump's Justice Department interferes in the Roger Stone case. And Trump claims his impeachment should be expunged because it was a hoax. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1114, February 7th. Trump fired the national security official who testified against him during the impeachment inquiry. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who heard the phone call Trump made to Ukraine's president, was, quote, escorted out of the White House. Trump also fired Vindman's twin brother for reasons unknown. Later, Trump said, quote, he was very insubordinate, reported contents of my perfect calls incorrectly, and was given a horrendous report by his superior, the man he reported to, public stated that Vindman had problems with judgment, adhering to the chain of command, and leaking information. Vindman's lawyer in a statement noted that none of this was true, and that Trump was, quote, obviously engaged in a campaign of retaliation and intimidation. Trump also fired the U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sundland, who said in his House testimony the White House visit by President Zelensky was conditional in Ukraine launching investigations into Joe Biden and that everyone was in the loop. State Department officials told Sunland they wanted him to resign, but Sunland declined to do so and said they would have to fire him, which they did. Sunland was a major contributor to Trump's 2016 campaign. In response, Chuck Schumer called on all 74 inspectors general to investigate any and all instances of retaliation against witnesses who have made protected disclosures of presidential misconduct. Schumer called the firings, quote, part of a dangerous growing pattern of retaliation against those who report wrongdoing only to find themselves targeted by the president and subject to his vindictiveness. FBI Director Christopher Wray said that Russia is engaged in information warfare against the United States heading into the 2020 election and is running a massive covert social media disinformation campaign. Ray also warned that other state actors, including North Korea and Iran, are entering the field, exploiting Facebook's unwillingness to remove false political ads. And Trump threatened to veto a nearly $5 billion emergency aid package to Puerto Rico. Nick Mulvaney's Office of Management and Budget claimed that, quote, multiple high-profile cases of corruption have marked distribution of aid already appropriated and have led to ongoing political instability on the island. The aid package included nearly $3.2 billion in community development block grants, and $1.25 billion for repairs to all roads that are still in tatters from hurricanes. An excitable Florida Republican Representative Matt Getz claimed he filed a complaint against House Speaker Nancy Pelosi after she publicly destroyed a copy of Trump's State of the Union address. The complaint claims she violated 18 U.S.C. 2071, which is the Official Records Act. 
That complaint was immediately dismissed as Pelosi's copy was not an official record. Day 1115, February 8th. Facebook and Twitter rejected a request by Speaker Nancy Pelosi to remove a video posted by Trump edited to make it appear as though she were ripping a copy of the State of the Union address as he honored a Tuskegee Airman. In a tart exchange, a Facebook spokesman responded, quote, Sorry, are you suggesting the president didn't make those remarks and the speaker didn't rip the speech? The speaker replied, What planet are you living on? This is deceptively altered. Take it down. Trump has delayed $30 million in arms transfers to Ukraine. At least six commercial sales of guns and ammunition have been frozen. Ukrainian officials said they haven't been able to get answers about why those deals have not been approved. A court dismissed a lawsuit against Trump for violating the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. A ruling by the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia found members of Congress lacked legal standing to bring suit against Trump for violating the cause. The Interior Department is to permit drilling, mining, and grazing in former national monuments in Utah. Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante, which contain significant amounts of oil, gas, and coal, have been protected under the Yaman administration. These sites are considered sacred by Native Americans. More than 100 U.S. service members have been diagnosed with traumatic brain injuries following the January 8th Iranian missile attack in Iraq. Previously, Trump said no one had been seriously hurt. It was just headaches. And a photo of Trump showing a striking contrast between Trump's fake tan and the pallor of his skin bordering his hair made the rounds. Trump claimed it was, quote, more fake news. This was photoshopped, obviously, but the wind was strong and the hair looks good. Anything to demean. The photo, which was actually taken by a Trump fan, was revealed to be 100% true. Day 1116, February 9th. Trump unveiled a $5 trillion budget proposal that would slash funding for domestic programs such as education and severely pare back safety net programs. Trump proposed to cut spending at the EPA by a massive 27%, the interior by 17% and housing by 15%. Trump also proposed cutting education by 10%. Meanwhile, spending for the military, national defense, and the border would increase. The Pentagon's budget calls for a nearly 20% increase for, quote, modernizing the nuclear stockpile and $18 billion for Trump's new space force. Trump's budget recommended eliminating subsidized federal student loans and ending the public service loan program. The budget would also drastically shrink funding for programs that support disadvantaged grammar school students. Trump also called for cuts in spending in Medicaid and Affordable Care Act subsidies that equal a trillion dollars. Trump had previously claimed he would not touch Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Trump's budget would also allow the deficit to balloon. In response, the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee said of the budget, quote, I felt an immense sense of relief. Relief that there's absolutely no chance of his ruthless cuts to critical programs ever becoming law. Trump apparently purchased access to the location data from millions of cell phones in America for use on immigration and border enforcement. ICE has used the data to identify immigrants. Customs and Border Protection has used the information to look for cell phone activity in unusual places. The Trump Organization charged the Secret Service multiple times their posted rates for staying at Trump properties. Secret Service agents were charged $650 a night per room and nearly $17,000 a month for a cottage near Mar-a-Lago. Trump's son, Eric, had previously claimed, quote, that if my father's travels, they stay at our properties for free. The Secret Service has apparently paid millions of dollars in rentals to Trump, but has refused to release a full accounting. And Antarctica hit 65 degrees, its warmest temperature ever recorded. Trump has said global warming is a Chinese hoax and that climate change activists are, quote, just trying to seize power. Day 
Day 1117, February 10th. Senator Lindsey Graham said the Justice Department was receiving information from Rudy Giuliani about Ukraine. Graham said the Department of Justice had created a back-channel process that Rudy could give information and they would see if it's verified. Attorney General William Barr acknowledged the Justice Department had established a, quote, intake process for evaluating the information, but said federal officials have to be very careful with information coming from Ukraine. Barr said nothing about the fact that this very process appears to be a conflict of interest at best. Giuliani is the reported subject of a criminal investigation. Two of his partners have already been arrested, and the Department of Justice is reportedly pursuing the possibility of charges against Giuliani as well. Unbowed, Giuliani claimed, quote, my information checks out 10 ways to Sunday, and that he obtained four or five, quote, unquestionably true documents relating to the Biden's work in Ukraine, along with a memo allegedly from a Democratic Party official documenting communications with a reporter. Amazon asked to depose Trump and Defense Secretary Mark Esper in a case that alleges they conspired against the company. The move escalates a major legal battle over a cloud computing contract for the Pentagon that Trump allegedly intervened in to award to Microsoft. Trump reportedly told then-Defense Secretary Jim Mattis last year to screw Amazon out of the contract. Amazon said that Trump is the only one who can testify about the totality of his conversations and the overall message he conveyed about the bidding process. The move was widely seen as retaliation against Amazon owner Jeff Bezos, who also owns the Washington Post. Four Chinese army officials were charged in a massive hacks of Equifax credit agency data that opened 150 million Americans' records. The breach occurred after Equifax security officials failed to install a software upgrade that had been recommended. The FBI said the hack and the indictment showed that, quote, China is one of the most significant threats to our national security today. The state of New York sued Trump over excluding New Yorkers from enrolling in federal trusted traveler programs. Trump cut off New Yorkers in response to New York's passage of a law allowing undocumented immigrants to apply for driver's licenses. And in a bizarre case, the Justice Department apparently gave a grant to a nonprofit called Hookers for Jesus. The grant came after the DOJ overruled its own career officials. Hookers for Jesus received $300,000 through the Federal Victims of Crime Act. The group's online manual said it was mandatory for guests of that shelter to attend and volunteer at a specific church that is illegal. The training manual also called homosexuality immoral and drug abuse witchcraft. Day 1118, February 11th. Former Trump advisor Roger Stone was found guilty of lying to Congress, obstructing the investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election, and tampering with a witness in his efforts to learn about emails hacked from Democratic sources. Federal prosecutors asked for a seven to nine year sentence for Stone, but in a stunning rebuke of career prosecutors, the Justice Department announced it plans to reduce that sentencing recommendation for Stone, who again is a longtime confidant of Trump. That move came after Trump claimed, quote, this is a horrible and very unfair situation. The real crimes were on the other side as nothing happens to them. Cannot allow this miscarriage of justice. The intervention will again draw charges of obstruction of justice. All four career prosecutors asked to withdraw immediately from the legal proceedings and one quit his job entirely. Barr's intervention in the case of Trump's behest crossed the historic line. The willingness of Barr to intervene in specific cases to protect Trump's allies while separately constructing special channels to investigate and potentially prosecute Trump's perceived political enemies now constitutes a major erosion in the basic structure of independent justice. 
Meanwhile, Alex Jones read a message purportedly from Stone, quote, I appeal to the president to pardon me because doing so would be an action that would show these corrupt courts that they're not going to get away with persecuting people for their free speech or for the crime of getting the president elected. And Trump complained at length about Colonel Vindman accusing him of misleading Congress about the president's July 25th phone call with his Ukrainian counterpart. In fact, Vindman's version of the call closely tracked the written record released by Trump. Trump suggested he should face military discipline, saying, quote, we sent him on his way to a much different location and the military can handle him any way they want. We'll find out. We'll find out. But he reported very inaccurate things. New Hampshire gave Bernie Sanders his signature win with Pete Buttigieg close behind. Amy Klobuchar came in a surprising third in the nation's first primary. The news was worse for Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. They both endured dreadful nights. Biden decamped to South Carolina before results were even in. Andrew Yang suspended his campaign in the wake of the primary. And the Office of Management and Budget knew about the Pentagon's concerns about Trump's hold on Ukrainian funding. The OMB's response was to mislead the Government Accountability Office about the freeze and bury any notes of opposition. Unredacted emails show that Pentagon officials were so concerned over that hold, they asked for a ruling if the move was actually legal or not. Day 1119, February 12th. As stunned reaction continued to royal Washington over the Department of Justice's unprecedented interference in a criminal case involving a Trump confidant, an unbowed Trump continued to criticize judges and Democrats. Speaking to reporters in the Oval Office, Trump called the prosecution of Stone a disgrace. When asked if he would pardon Stone, Trump said, I don't want to say that yet, but I'll tell you what, people were hurt viciously and badly by these corrupt people. He then claimed it was unfair that Stone, who has been convicted for, among other things, threatening a witness, was prosecuted when James Comey, the former FBI director, has not been jailed. You have murderers and drug addicts that don't get nine years. Nine years for doing something that no one can even define what he did. In the meantime, Comey walks around making book deals. The Democrats are crooked. They got a lot of crooked things going. They're vicious. They shouldn't have brought impeachment. Trump also withdrew Jesse Liu's nomination to become the Treasury Department's Terrorism and Financial Crimes Undersecretary because her department handled the Roger Stone and Michael Flynn cases. Trump pulled Liu's nomination two days before a scheduled confirmation hearing. Liu immediately quit. In a tweet he quickly deleted, Trump called Michael Bloomberg a total racist in all caps, attaching an audio clip of the former mayor of New York defending stop and frisk policies in 2015. Bloomberg, a Jew, responded by noting Trump's defense of white nationalists and added, quote, I am not afraid of him and I'm not going to let him bully me or anyone else in America. And a Tennessee lawmaker introduced an amendment that would recognize CNN and the Washington Post as fake news and part of the media wing of the Democratic Party. The amendment also reads, we recognize that fake news outlets suggest ideas without directly making accusations that they can claim innocence from their ivory tower. Day 1120, February 13th. Former White House aide Hope Hicks left Fox News to return as a senior advisor to Trump. That reunites him with one of his closest confidants as his re-election campaign accelerates. Hicks left in 2018, one day after she testified before the House Intelligence Committee that she lied in the course of her job as Trump's communications director. Trump claimed that the jurors in the Roger Stone trial were biased, accelerating concerns about political interference in the judicial process. Trump posted a thinly sourced Fox News story that accused some of the jurors in the case of bias, quote, now it looks like the four-person in the jury, the Roger Stone case, had significant bias. Add that to everything else, this is not looking good for the Justice Department. In fact, the foreman had presented defense of the prosecution on Facebook, calling Trump's interference unbelievable. 
Former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly said Trump's pressure campaign on Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden was tantamount to an illegal order, and the Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman was right to report that phone call. Quote, he did exactly what we teach them to do from cradle to grave. He went and told his boss what he just heard. Kelly added that Trump's attempts to make aid to Ukraine contingent upon President Zelensky announcing investigation into Trump's political rivals essentially changed American policy toward Ukraine. 66% of voters now believe Trump will be re-elected in November. In a generic poll, Trump loses to every Democrat currently in the race, including Michael Bloomberg. In three attempts at running for the presidential nomination, Joe Biden has yet to win a single primary. Happy Valentine's Day to all of you from all of us. These are the Trump Diaries. The Klonsky brothers spoke to Bob Ryder and Greg Pratt about union activism and involvement at Chicago's newspapers. Ryder spoke about saving the Sun-Times, while Pratt discussed the campaign his guild is waging against a hedge fund known for stripping assets. Hitting Left airs every Friday at 11. Greg Pratt, uh, you're, you're a, um, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And you're also a uh, an activist uh, in the uh, in the Tribune Guild. What what is the Tribune Guild? Is that a is that a, a union? Uh, is that a yeah? What so is it's, that exactly? it's pretty remarkable that uh, the Chicago Tribune ex- has existed for since Lincoln's days, and they never unionized. And we've had uh, just about every major newspaper across the country is unionized. But the Tribune didn't unionize until a couple years ago when a whole bunch of us, myself included, decided that we were tired of terrible owners. At the time, we had Michael Farrow, who is a local sleazebag who has uh, some serious sexual harassment accusations and destroyed the Sun-Times or did serious damage to the Sun-Times. And we chased him out. Uh, But he sold his shares to Alden Global Capital, which is a hedge fund that doesn't even pretend to care about journalism. And so now we're in the really uncomfortable mix of trying to fight off this hedge fund that's trying to take control of the Tribune. But are you, a, are, is the Guild a, a traditional trade union kind of organization? Do you bargain for the uh, for the Tribune employees? Oh, yeah. We, we have, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure how many, but um, most of the newsroom is part of the Guild uh, now. You know, some editors, all the reporters. And we, we have a pretty strong body, and we're negotiating our first contract and uh, fighting like hell on all fronts. Bob, it, so, 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 yeah, explain a little – can you just explain a little bit about when a hedge – when a hedge, a lot of people heard the term hedge funds but don't know really what it is that they what, – what they do and what the results are when they come in and – and buy an entity like the like the Tribune Corporation. What what are they? Yeah. So for, first, I would just you know the CFL represents three hundred unions that represent half a million uh, women and men in Chicago and Cook County. One of the groups that we represent is the Chicago News Guild, which the Tribune Guild is a part ah, of that, okay. and they are you know in every in every way they're a traditional and in every way that we see today, also an untraditional union. You know, they they do the they do the the normal functions that a union would do in terms of trying to get a first contract. But these guys are activists, and they spend a lot of time um, on social media talking about um, all these different issues, including um, Alden. So, you know, I have a little bit of a background in this, in that I was part of the effort to 
uh, by the Sun-Times, which we successfully did with a group of investors, out from under the Tribune. You meaning the Chicago CFL the Chicago bought Federa- a piece of yeah, the Sun-Times. The Chicago Federation of Labor helped organize the deal um, to purchase the uh, Sun-Times. I was actually the point person from the CFL. I'm working on that. And if you don't pull together people who care about journalism, that want to protect the second voice, the people like um, Alden as a hedge fund and also the big newspaper uh, companies that are now getting funded by uh, uh, venture capital groups like Alden, they're looking at um, they're lo- they're looking at bottom lines, right? It's not you know there's been the criticism of venture capital over the course of the last couple decades that they're not actual business owners and you their approach to business is different than a person who builds a company. Well, they'll buy a company, break it apart, sell pieces of it. Uh, well, they've been referred to as strip miners. Right. right. Strip miners. Sometimes when you have a business, you look at the assets you own and you may want to sell off, you know, different parts of your asset structure in order to reinvest in your core business. Usually when venture capitalists are the way they look at it is what can we discard so we can so we can suck capital out. They don't reinvest that capital typically into the business. They're trying to suck as much capital out so they can then push that capital into another enterprise and just create their web of destruction and mayhem. So if you look at if you look at someone um, like uh, like Alden, they have a they have a noted history of going in and stripping out full time journalists to go to um, uh, people that are. You know, when they, you know, freelancers, you know, there's a lot of journalists and photographers that like to operate as a freelance, like they have the freedom. But now we're creating an industry where people who want to just work in a newsroom and, you know, ha- you know, get behind their profession are forced to be freelancers because, you know, it's it's the, you know, it's the quote unquote gig economy way of living, which is just another way to have have the boss have more leverage over people who can't fight, you know, who or have the tools of fighting for themselves taken away and suppressed. Thompson Springs came into Studio A for a John Daly session. Off their forthcoming LP, this is 1964. It was engineered by Ari Shellist. Crash was in the winter They were 
Particularly um, notable commercial during a the the a very large sporting event that occurred over the weekend. Yeah, uh, a lot of buzz about it, uh, a lot of discussion, and um, it feels almost uh, redundant to talk about it. But it it was so um, out of the ordinary that I feel it deserves. Uh, some discussion. Yeah, and perhaps we can we can give it a little more uh, more more you know information than the average listener might know, or, or might have just seen the the, the commercial sure. in question. All right, of course, this is involving a very famous uh, food mascot um, mm-hmm. who uh, died uh, on screen during this mm-hmm. this uh, sporting event. Of course, I am speaking about the uh, Vintners Chips mascot, Vinny. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vinny is an anthropomorphic bag of chips. I don't really need to explain this. I'm sure any any if the listener has been to any store in Chicago, they've sure. certainly seen Vinny, the anthropomorphic bag of yeah. chips, welcomed, wearing, beckoned by, wearing sunglasses and often seen skateboarding yeah. or playing a pretzel trumpet. Really it's just, been, yeah, really, really just um, representing what it means to be a Chicago, and spe- specifically what it means to have Chicago-based snack foods. Yes. Um, it's been the logo of Vintner's Chips since the early 1950s, and in the commercial in question, uh, B- Vinny was bisected through the use of ho- hooks, a number of winches, uh, until tearing apart laterally, mm-hmm. um, out spilled a mix of entrails and barbecue-flavored chips. I'm presuming barbecue-flavored because of the color. It could have been the blood as well. Um The particularly startling thing about this, which I think is why the bulk of the response has come out, because, you know, there's these sort of – this particular sporting event is well known for its commercials and these companies going all out on these commercials. Mm -hmm. What was really bizarre or some would say uh, disturbing was that there was really no 
actual advertisement in this commercial. There was no call to action, if you will, no, no incentivization to try and go buy chips. It was uh, merely a two-minute long, uh, seemingly unedited uh, footage of Vinny in a concrete cell being torn open. Uh, sound and all. Sound quality was not great, but you could clearly make out the, the sound of the ripping and the screaming. Uh it, it, it's uh, very um, peculiar, and mm -hmm. it, it, I'm not sure if really this is – if the idea was to get attention, sure. to bring the brand to the forefront, then they, they did that. They absolutely did that. Broadcast every Saturday, 8 to 9 p.m. The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.